This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is John Mousseau, and he is president, CEO, and head of fixed income trading at Cumberland Advisors, a firm that runs about $3.5 billion in mostly fixed income products. Uh, They do equity as well. I know Moose for a long time. He is David Kotak's right-hand man, and I have been fishing with Moose up in Maine at the Shadow Federal Reserve event that takes place every summer for, gee, better part of a decade. There aren't many people who understand uh, the internal plumbing and the mechanicals of fixed income the way Moose does. He really is incredibly knowledgeable and insightful, and I think if you are anything interested in fixed income, bonds, munis, and how they actually uh, are, are traded on Wall Street, you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my Masters in Business interview with John Mousseau. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is John Mousseau. He is the CEO and Director of Fixed Income at Cumberland Advisors, a bond shop that manages over $3.5 billion in assets. He is a chartered financial analyst and has his master's in economics from Brown. John Mousseau, welcome to a shelter-in-place version of Masters in Business. I know John for a long time. We uh, fish up in Maine every year in Camp Kotak. We'll, We'll come back to that a little later. Let's talk a little bit about your career. Tell us about your first job on Wall Street. Hi, Barry. Thanks. Uh, I walked in off the streets in New York in the fall of 1980 and answered an ad from the New York Times for the Value Line Investment Survey. They gave me a quiz and hired me as an assistant securities analyst. I remember getting the Value Line um, papers that you would put into a giant three-ring binder on updates on different companies and different sectors. That that was a couple of years ago. It, it, you know, it, it ran that way for a long time uh, before they got to the Internet age. And what you did as a securities analyst there is you really wrote script to fit the model uh, for the stocks. They had a relative value model that ranked stocks. Uh, but like I said, it was a great place to learn. Still have a lot of friends from there. Uh, met Jeff Vinnick there, who was my desk mate uh, early on. Uh, and, you know, the fact that the product is still out there today uh, says a lot. And, and Vinnick ended up at a little shop called Fidelity, if memory serves. Yes, yes a little shop called Fidelity. And I can remember him saying to me, we were there out over a couple of beers. He goes, Moose, if I ever hit it really big, I'm going to buy a hockey team. And sure <laughs> enough, he did. And, and for sure. So, so where did you go from Value Line? What was your next stop? From there, I spent the next twelve years at a combined firms of E.F. Hutton and then Shearson after they took over Hutton, and did most of my work there in the beginning years for the government bond department and the municipal bond department, and eventually ended up doing portfolio analysis uh, at Hutton and ended up basically running a portfolio analysis group right to 1993, where we analyzed municipal bond portfolios and suggested changes. Uh, and in 1993, I went to Lord Abbott and became the director of municipal bond management. 
that was a great spot. Uh, learned a lot from Bob Dow, who ran the firm and ran the fixed income area there. And I was there until the year 2000. And that's the year I joined Cumberland Advisors. So you end up at Cumberland Advisors uh, in the year 2000. How, why did you gravitate more towards fixed income over uh, equities? I really always enjoyed fixed income because of the way it tied together uh, math and the idea that all bond prices more or less moved in the same direction, but none of them moved in the same velocity uh, and depending on maturities, et cetera. So it always had a lot more appeal to me. And it's, it's funny because when I started at Value Line and you're actually analyzing earnings of companies, uh, I was excellent at predicting earnings and still couldn't figure out why a stock might hit their earnings but go down or go up. And, and bonds always tied together much more rationally for me. So, so that leads to a question. I've heard over the years bonds called the smart money. Why is that? Is it, is it that rationality that leads people to thinking bonds are, are a little less uh, random or emotional than stocks are? I think the idea is, with, particularly with municipal bonds, uh, you know, the, it's not my line, but I thought it was a great line. Uh, they don't make you rich, but they keep you rich. And the idea of bond investing over time and the compounding of interest, uh, it's, it's terrific. And, you know, you go back and look back to the early 1980s when interest rates were high. If you had bought something like you know, zero coupon strips at 14% interest for 30 years, it would have been very hard to replicate that anywhere else. When I think of bonds, I think of three factors that go into the specific value of a bond. It's the credit quality, the coupon or yield, and the duration. Is it that simple? Are, are bonds just a mathematical formula? No. There's a lot more that goes into it. It's not just credit quality. It's relative credit quality. It's uh, not just duration. It's a relative duration to the market. And, and it's the structure of bonds, too. Call protection or lack of call protection. A convexity comes in. I mean, that's that's really – a lot of those judgments are what you would call total return bond management. And that's where David Kotak, who's still the chairman of Cumberland, and I agreed early on. It was – you know, we, we, we saw the world the same in the world of bonds. Explain convexity of bond positions to me. Sure. Convexity is, is really the – they call it the second derivative. So if you look at a, a bond and you can judge its duration or basically how much the price changes for a, a given change in yield, the convexity will tell you how fast that duration is changing. It's like the, it's like the equivalent of acceleration to speed. Huh. Quite interesting. And, and for most of my career – I've heard bonds described as the adult supervision in the room, um, the bond vigilantes were going to keep the Congress in check and make sure they uh, didn't deficit spend too much. They were going to keep their eyes on inflation and fight that. Whatever happened to the so-called bond vigilantes? Boy, that was a while ago. And, and you know, if you go back, one of Bill Clinton's favorite lines was uh, – and I'm taking out the swear words, but you know, do you mean I, I really have to bow down to all the, the bond traders? And the answer back then from Alan Greenspan is, uh, yes, you do. And 
they figured out a way back then to actually lower the government deficit and actually get it to a surplus. And along the way, interest rates came down, which was uh, really not a surprise. Now you've gone the other way and the deficits really haven't mattered and you're at all time lows in yield. So to answer your question, a lot of that has been thrown out the door. His, uh, his political advisor, James Carville, I believe is the one who said uh, when he comes back, he wants to be reincarnated as the bond market because everybody is terrified of it. Right. Maybe not this bond market, but yes. <laughs> so, Moose, let's talk a little bit about how the bond market has changed over the past 30 years. What are some of the big differences between 2020 and 1980? I think the, there's some differences and there's some similarities, Barry. I think the biggest difference, of course, is electronic trading, much more prevalent on the taxable side. Uh, on the municipal side, you actually still need to talk to dealers and underwriters, and that's because of the diffuse nature of the municipal bond market. Uh, the municipal bond market is still much more of a people business. You have to kind of know where the bonds are, uh, where the levels are, who's offering what bonds. On the corporate side, it is much more electronic-oriented, block-trading-oriented, uh, and, and that's, been, that's been the biggest change. So a lot less people, clearly a lot less firms, and bigger volume electronically. So, so let's talk about what I think is the most fascinating difference between stocks and bonds. You know, the Wilshire 5000, the joke is it's now about 3,000 stocks. Add in some of the over-the-counter and really – Small caps maybe have 4,000 stocks. When we look at the world of bonds, there's hundreds of thousands of individual bonds. It's almost as if putting together a bond portfolio is bespoke. How infrequently do these bonds trade and how unique are each of these issues that are out there? Again, it, it, it differs. When you're in the world of corporates and mortgages and treasuries, it, it's a fairly defined universe of, of bonds. And putting portfolios together is probably a little easier than on the tax-free side, where you have probably have a million different QCIPs out there. And that's because of the nature of many bond issues that come to market, where they have serial bonds and, and term bonds. And so the, just the amount of issues is almost overwhelming. So in the tax-free side, only a fraction of the available bonds that are out there actually trade every day. And explain what QCIPs are for the audience who may not sure. be on a bond desk. It's a it's a uniform identification system. So each bond has its own unique identifier, which is crucial to identifying the, the bond itself, as well as processing the trade later on. And And let's talk a little bit about processing those trades. You know, early in my career and certainly early in your career, every brokerage firm had its own bond trading desk. Every bank, every insurer, trading was done constantly all over the place. Today it seems, uh, and, and I rely on my friend David Nadig, who's been pushing this argument for a long time, Nadig says all that has been replaced with BlackRock and Vanguard as, as the new street bond desks. Is he exaggerating, or how true is that? They're, they are certainly behemoths out there. But look, you know, you can you can look at that and say, 
does that work to your advantage or not? As, as a smaller investment advisor relative to those, those guys, uh, a BlackRock's not going to care about a $25 million water bond from Eastern Ohio, some school district. Uh, we care about a $25 million water bond from Eastern Ohio because it's meaningful to us. So to the extent that they've gotten too big and a lot of issues aren't relevant to them, we can take advantage of that. So I would disagree with Dave a little bit. And at Cumberland, are you guys putting together bespoke bond portfolios? Are you buying bond mutual funds or bond ETFs? How do you deliver a fixed income mix to clients? Um, now, we, we will use uh, individual bonds as we put portfolios together. And our own our thoughts have always been that the final product looks much better when you have individual bonds uh, as opposed to owning mutual funds. And, and part of that reason is the ability to input certain yield levels and duration levels into portfolios. You know, the other part, too, is just talking about mutual funds in general. The difference between owning a portfolio of individual bonds and owning a mutual fund of bonds is the fact that if you own a mutual fund, you're subservient to one price and one price only, and that's the price of that fund at the end of the day, or if it's an ETF, the price of that ETF at the end of the day. If you own individual bonds, they can be spread out. You can have some longer-term bonds and some shorter-term bonds. So if there's a need for cash, uh, and maybe it's not a particularly good bond market, you can find assets in the portfolio that have not been uh, hurt price-wise and, and use them to your advantage. So I think individual bonds offers a much greater degree of flexibility. We've had some clients say to us, I don't want to own a bond mutual fund because I'm concerned if during a bond sell-off, I'm subject to the whims of what my fellow mutual fund investors are doing, and that could drive the price below either fair value or net asset value. How realistic of a threat is that to people who are bond mutual fund investors as opposed to buying individual bonds themselves? I think it's a very good point because you don't have control over that. And the route we just went through is a perfect example of that. Uh, you walked in the door March 9th and Treasury prices were skyrocketing because of the Saudi selling of oil. Uh, that meant that a lot of the corporate and municipal bond dealers – couldn't hedge anything anymore with prices and treasuries doing what they're doing. So what did they do? They backed off their prices. So then the evaluation services don't have many prices to, to put on that night. So they take prices down. So the poor guy whose only holdings is XYZ bond fund looks at his NAV the next day, his net asset value, and it's gone down. He says, maybe I should sell some. So he sells some, and the next day the mutual funds have to meet these redemptions by selling bonds into a market that's already eroding. So prices get down further. The next day, same investor looks at my NAV went down further. I better sell some more. So now you've gotten yourself into a negative feedback loop of selling of mutual funds. And we saw that on an absolutely gargantuan level in the middle of March. And had they just wrote it out for a couple of weeks, the worst of it would have passed and we would have seen some sort of recovery in the in the mutual fund and bond market. Is that a fair statement? That, that is a more than fair statement. And it was not only a rebound, it was a rebound of historic proportion. So the back off was also historic. You went 
essentially from 2% to 4% in about seven business days, six business days. And then you rebounded three quarters of that in about three business days. I've been managing money for 36 years. I've never seen anything like it. So we have a mutual friend from Fidelity, Eric Golden, who runs a uh, quantitatively driven fixed income portfolio. He said he saw prices do things that the models say just can't happen. Your, your experience sounds like it was very similar. Uh, very similar. And I, and I can tell you just from having, having put trades on, we saw bond prices down over 25 points and certainly dis some discounted bonds from lower coupons. So think about a bond that came in December at 100 cents on the dollar that was trading at 75 cents on the dollar in mid-March. And less than a week later, it was being priced at par. So if you were nimble, that, there, that was capital, there was upside to be had. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, and a, a total return manager is going to use that type of a distress in the market to go and, and change the mix of his portfolios. And in our view, that sell-off that you saw in March was not credit-related. It was all liquidity-related because of what was going on in the stock market. People wanted cash. It didn't matter whether it was in a bond mutual fund or a, a, a REIT or, or anything else. I mean, they were selling gold, and by the end of that week, they were also selling treasury bonds. So anything to get cash. The, the old line is, in an emergency, you sell what you can, not what you want. And that's true about the meltdown of mutual funds. Uh, you know, a mutual fund manager won't sell what he'd like to sell, which might be a I'm making it up a hospital bond that he leaned the wrong way on and buying and doesn't have the greatest credit in the world. It's exactly what you said, Barry. You sell what you can sell, which is usually a high-grade bond. So earlier we were discussing the dislocation in corporates and treasuries. Let's talk a little bit about the muni market. From everything I heard and saw during the beginning volatility early in March, it looked like the muni bond market had just gone berserk, maybe even the most severe dislocation of any of the fixed income trading we've seen. Tell us what happened, and so far, have the markets uh, recovered yet? Sure, Barry. I mean, it was certainly, a, March was certainly historic volatility and historic loss and almost historic rebounding. Uh, you know, I, I still I harken back to March 9th when Treasury prices were spiking upward and yields were dropping, and that rendered most firms out there on Wall Street uh, impotent to actually give you a bid on bonds because they couldn't hedge anything. So prices were backed off, and that combined with the stock market that had started to roll over, partly because the price of oil was dropping and there was concern on the economy and the coronavirus picking up. And you suddenly had a perfect storm of dropping equity prices, people looking for cash wherever it could be, and that involved the selling of bond funds and bond ETFs into a market that was overwhelmed. So when you think about bond yields moving up from 2% to 4%, that is a historic rise in a very short period of time, 200 basis points, and essentially a doubling of yields. Uh, and... and like I said, most of that was almost all liquidity related and, and not credit related. And, and and yet there are concerns out there, about, of course, about municipalities and how they're going to fare through this. 
Uh, our viewpoint on that is that most really kind of high quality general obligation and, and essential service bonds are going to be fine. Uh, you know, what you end up doing is you're looking at the essentiality of a service through the prism of the virus, and things look a little different if you're talking about something like a, a rapid transit bond or an airport bond, et cetera. But that, that was not the cause of the sell-off in the mutual funds. So, so this wasn't a systemic issue. This was just a massive amount of volume that overwhelmed the normal liquidity that exists in the bond market? Uh, that's exactly right. And you hadn't seen that before where the meltdown in the bond market was occurring alongside a meltdown in the stock market. Uh, the last time you really saw that was in 2008, and that was after Lehman failed. And that sell-off in municipal bond funds was credit-related because nobody knew whether anything was going to pay. In other words, when, when Lehman went under, it was like the 13th strike of a clock, and people wondered, oh, does that mean my school district is not going to pay off its bonds? Or that the water authority won't pay off its bonds. It was really overdone, but but that was the nature of that sell-off. So let's look at the current circumstances, which seem to be not comparable to anything else that's come before, including 0809. Uncle Sam uh, has shown an ability to keep running deficits for as long and as deeply as needs, but states and cities don't have that luxury. And we know that these states and we know that these cities, especially areas like New York, New Jersey, Washington State, wherever the virus has, has hit pretty hard, we're starting to see signs that's happening in Florida. How are these states going to operate if they can't run a deficit and have hundreds of millions or billions in shortfalls? Are these states potentially at risk for defaulting? on whatever general obligation bonds they've issued? It's a good question, Barry. And what you look at is really twofold. One, almost all bond issuers have debt service reserve funds. Sometimes that can be a half year, sometimes a year. It depends on the, depends on the issue. Will we see credit downgrades? Absolutely. You're seeing it now. Will you see invasion of debt service reserves? Sure. And you're going to see thinner debt service coverage across the board. That's a given. We don't think you're going to see massive defaults, especially if you come out of this within the next month or two. So what it, what it is, is it's a, it's a torpedo to the side of the ship, but the ship is going to continue to sail. And then you start restoring debt service. Um, we think that there is a lot of federal support for certainly some of the uh, bigger agencies out there. Let's take a very high-profile one. Uh, look at the MTA in New York City with the subways. You can certainly think of, uh, you know, MTA as a, as a poster child for uh, transportation, and transportation is certainly a poster child for infrastructure. And I think that's one thing that the administration is really keen on. So I, I see certainly a lot of support for that. Uh, I see a lot of state of New York support for that, so I, I don't expect to see a default on that. It doesn't stop bonds from trading cheaper. We've seen that for sure, uh, and that's that includes airport bonds as well. You look at the hub airports out there. The federal government is not going to have those airports uh, go into default because 
they are necessary for the restoration of the economy when we're back at work in hopefully a month. We normally think of equity investors as the risk takers who are more greatly compensated for assuming that risk than the traditional bond investor. But I have to ask, given what you just said, what sort of compensation uh, are risk takers receiving in the fixed income market these days? Well, you can you can argue that um, – look at a lot of deals that have come in the last week or so. The, the long end of the tax-free bond market, the high-grade end, has restored itself to roughly about a 3% yield. That doesn't sound particularly high and, like a, and doesn't sound like a particularly rewarding yield if you think about the potential for downgrades down the road or a thinning of debt service coverage, et cetera. It does look relatively – cheap when you compare it to a long treasury bond of 135. But I would contend the treasuries are probably a little overbought in here and municipals may be a little cheap and they're going to eventually meet in the middle. I think the important part is to keep the long-term really economics of municipalities in the forefront when you're investing. If you went back to the worst period in our history, which was the Great Depression, and we don't think we're going back to that. Uh, you had about 1,700 municipal entities in this country stopped paying their debt. didn't mean they went bankrupt in a legal sense, but they just stopped paying. And in the end, as the economy turned around, they all, except for a few Dust Bowl towns in Oklahoma, almost all paid off their debt in arrears and got current on their debt and continued to pay. And that's because of the monopolistic powers that municipalities have. If a meteor came tomorrow and hit the St. Louis Water Authority, would they stop paying their debt? Yeah, most likely. When they rebuilt things and, and started to get debt service again, would they repay it? Absolutely. So, John, in all of this, we haven't talked about the Mac Daddy in the room, the Federal Reserve. What is the role today of the Fed in the fixed income market? Uh, Barry, the role is probably more important than ever. And you only have to look back at the last few weeks to figure it out. Uh, you look at the Fed and how did they step in on this crisis? Well, the first thing is that they fixed the short-term bond market. You think about things like revenue anticipation notes, uh, bond anticipation notes. These are the things that money market funds invest in. Some of them are non-rated. They're, they're promises to pay. The bid dropped out of the market in the middle of this crisis in mid-March. What the Fed did is they established credit facilities that would buy these bonds from the money market funds, these RANs and TANs, at their cost basis, not at the market, and give them cash. So that kept the money market funds in business. And you can't really get uh, an improvement in equities until you improve the bond market. So their first stop was to fix the short-term bond market. Then you saw the legislation come in where the Treasury, through the Fed as their agent, was going to start to buy municipal bonds once out to – Five years, they have to be investment grade or better, not high yield. They haven't done it yet. Just the fact that they established it was enough to really improve the bond market a couple of weeks ago as that package was putting together. So the Fed, through either their ability to do credit facilities or their special ability to buy bonds out through six months, which they have and have not exercised, and now the ability of the Treasury to go through the Fed and try to buy bonds out through five years. All of that has helped shore up the market and it's been very important. 
So the mere announcement that, hey, we have the ability to buy munis if we want to, is sufficient to stabilize the bond market. Absolutely. And it and not only has stabilized the short-term market, which is also in disarray, but it helped to stabilize the long-term market because uh, w- within that confine, there is the ability to take that beyond five years. I mean, Steve Mnuchin can call up Jay Powell and say, we want this extended to 15 or 20 or 30 years, and they could do that. Huh. I recall during the 08-09 crisis, the big complaint I heard from the Fed haters and the people wringing their hands over the various rescue packages was that the Fed is adding $3 trillion to their balance sheet. This is going to cause all sorts of trouble. Well, here we are a decade later. What is there, $5 trillion on the way to $6 trillion? What does that mean for fill in the blank, the economy, fixed income, inflation, for the Fed to potentially have trillions and trillions on their balance sheet? Well, what did we learn from the 08, 09 area? And actually, what was essentially three rounds of quantitative easing. It never created inflation, even though you saw the Fed take their balance sheet up to what was then record levels, and they were buying treasuries, agencies, and mortgages. The key to that was the fact, A, they were trying to keep rates lower, but it didn't create inflation because if they bought $100 million worth of treasuries and they bought it from the bank of Barry Ritholtz, and deposited $100 million, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the bank of Barry Ritholtz put that money back on deposit at the Fed, earning a quarter of a percent. What it was not doing was lending the money out. So the velocity of money and the expansion of money that way was not happening. The quantitative easing was effectively keeping rates in, in, in a certain range. What could cause inflation is the $2 trillion plus clearly more money coming on the government spending side. And that's what you didn't have. I mean, you had $800 billion in programs back in the 08-09 crisis. That is going to be tripled or quadrupled here. Uh, I would expect and remember you that remember that $800 billion was $300 billion was a temporary tax cut. $300 billion was a temporary extension of unemployment benefits. The pure stimulative fiscal part of it was was barely $200 billion. Right. And and you, you saw some other things like the BABS programs, et cetera. You might see a resurrection or something like that. BABS I, being I, Build, American, Build, Build America, America bonds. Right. Build America bonds, which was really to try to get uh, municipalities to borrow in the taxable market because the at that point, treasuries were at three and long tax-free bonds were at six. So the, it, it was really ineffective borrowing. So this allowed them to get a 35% subsidy from the federal government, really lowered their borrowing cost to something under 4%, and they were essentially building new things. So think about a, an airport building a new runway or a state university building a new dorm where they're pouring concrete, hiring people, building stuff. That was the stimulative nature of it. Uh, whether we see something like that here we don't know. The, the administration has announced a $2 trillion infrastructure policy, but we haven't seen any particulars on it yet. I would, I would think, though, that if you don't get inflation down the road from this amount of government spending, then we might never see inflation. Huh. That, that's, quite, that's quite fascinating. So let's, let's talk about the opposite of inflation. Let's talk about deflation and negative rates. When, when you started your career – 
Did you ever imagine a set of circumstances where rates could go negative? Uh, no, and I guess one of the nice things of having a long career is I've seen the peak in interest rates and I've seen the low in interest rates, uh, like forever. You know, you, you don't think about negative interest rates when you think about textbooks back in the 1980s or 70s or even, even 90s. But you saw negative interest rates and you saw them in Europe over the last year. So if you get back from this particular crisis and go through last year, you saw negative rates, not here. And our interest rates dropped in the U.S. last summer, really not because the economy here is floundering, but because our rates were too high relative to what was going on around the world. Uh, and, and all negative rate means is that you're expecting rates to go more negative, so you want to lock in something. Losing half a percent is better than losing one percent, so you want to lock that in. I think Europe was coming to the agreement that this was not good for banks. Uh, and you saw a lot of noise and some movement. And before all this, you would start to see rates rise. So Germany had gone from negative 10-year bond rates to actually positive rates. Uh, in, the last, in the last few weeks, they've gone from negative like minus 0.9 to up to minus 0.3. So I think we're going to move out of the negative interest rate range over time. And I think... The idea is if you can get back to a world where you have a, a steeper yield curve, then the banks are in shape to make money and you need a decent banking system and a banking system that's in financial health and can make money to get the economy moving. Huh. They used to call it the zero bound for a reason. I guess uh, we can't use that phrase anymore. Um, so, so it sounds like you're not looking at rates going negative from here even if we have a, a pretty substantial rescue package? No. I think what you'll see is you'll actually see rates uh, turn positive. I think you'll see a, a more positive-looking yield curve. And I think if, if all the kind of government stimulus that you see, that should produce a positive yield curve because you'd think you would start to build out inflationary expectations as you go further out, and that's reflected in the shape of the yield curve as well. So that leads to the obvious question, are we ever going to see inflation in our lifetime? I think so. And, you know, if you looked, if you looked last year at the um, kind of the middle part of the year, you had a cover of Business Week and it had a picture of some kind of animal and it said, it says, the death of inflation. That was good enough for me to realize that inflation is probably coming back. It, 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 it takes a while. And it will take a while to build up. And I think you wonder about where where will it end up? What asset class will it end up in? We've seen some of the Fed's actions in the past. It ends up in maybe small cap stocks or it ends up in the housing market. Does this time, does it end up in commodities, which are, are you know, it's been severely depressed? You would think that if you come out of this mess, those kind of traditional things like copper and timber and things of that nature would start to do well. And so I would start to think you'd see some inflation. And yet throughout this whole post-credit crisis recovery period, we've seen a huge uptick in multifamily housing construction. We've seen a lot of sectors of the economy over the past 12 years slowly come back online and still no inflation. So what's going to be the, the spark that lights that fire? You know, it, 
it's hard to say, Barry, because you, I think what's going to be going on here is a lot of it based on demographics. And what you're going to see is the millennials who, if you draw a bell curve of the millennials, the biggest part of that curve is just starting to turn 30. And they're just starting to get into the years where uh, they will start to spend money on family formation and all the things the baby boomers did, except maybe a little more delayed and, and a little more delayed partly because of the financial crisis of 2008-09. So kids who got out of college between, say, 2008 and 2011 were really behind the, the eight ball a little bit in terms of getting jobs or getting the quality of jobs that people just a couple of years younger got later on. So even they are now approaching that point of liftoff from a spending standpoint. And if you look at the millennials as a group, they are bigger than the baby boomers. So I think that's where it's going to come from. Huh, quite interesting. So normally, if we were in the Bloomberg office, I would be asking my 10 favorite questions, but we don't have the full 90 minutes to do that. So I'm just going to give you a speed round, five sure. questions, quick answers. Let's plow right through this. What yep. are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, Disney Plus shows. Uh, I am back watching all the Ken Burns specials on baseball World War, Prohibition, et cetera. So, you know, you're never too old to learn and you're never too old to relearn. Huh, quite interesting. Who were your early mentors? Who influenced your career? Um, really, when I look back, a, a man named Billy Gao at EF Hutton, who was a public finance banker, and he, he really kind of took a liking to me and got me into the municipal bond area. And then later on, Bob Dow at Lord Abbott. Tell us about your favorite books. What are you reading? What do you like to give as gifts? Uh, I'm big into history. Um, you know, one of my favorite books was Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, uh, which was a tomb by William Shire. I, I go back and read Free to Choose by Milton Friedman every once in a while to make sure I'm uh, oriented the right way. And I'm, I'm trying to read the Ulysses Grant biography right now by uh, Ron Chernow. Hmm, quite, quite interesting. A recent college graduate considering a career and fixed income comes to you and asks for some advice, what would you tell them? I would say find a spot on any firm and do everything they ask from sweeping the floors to, uh, you know, make sure you show up the first one there every day and find a mentor. But I would give that advice to anybody that's starting out. If you can find a mentor, uh, and, and even if it takes you a few years, it is well worth it because you have somebody to bounce ideas off of. And our final question, what do you know about the world of fixed income today you wish you knew 40 years ago when you were first starting out? I wish I had known the importance of international flows and currencies. Um, you know, as a, as a municipal bond expert, back 40 years ago, you didn't realize the importance of international flows and how they would affect things. So the, the fact is that the change in the Chinese currency would affect municipal bond investing would never occur to you. It definitely affects it today. So I think that's the one thing that I've learned. Quite interesting. We have been speaking with John Mousseau. He is president, CEO, and director of fixed income trading at Cumberland Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things fixed income. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. 
write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Masters in Business at Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff. That helps put these conversations together each week under trying conditions from various remote locations. Michael Boyle is my producer. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.